Good morning. Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of your word. We praise you that every word in the Bible is divine, breathed out by you, God, and useful for equipping us for every good work. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your law, which you have given to restrain evil, to reveal our need for Jesus, and to train us in righteousness. God, as we look to your holy word this morning, we ask that you would be at work by your spirit to these ends. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you, um, have have any of you ever seen those, any of those uh, social experiment videos on YouTube? It's where they, 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 they secretly film people and they see how they would respond in different situations. Uh, they don't know what's going on, but they, they want to see how people are going to respond. I recently watched one of these videos and, and the people who made it, they staged an attempted kidnapping of a little girl sitting on a, a bench And they recorded how people responded when uh, a stranger, a strange man came and tried to convince her to to go away with him. And he would try different tactics. He would claim that, you know, his, her mom sent him and, and, you know, he's going to take her to her or he would try to say like, hey, I've got a, a, a nice shiny new soccer ball. Why don't you come with me? Now understand that the little girl is in on this. She's an actor too. And they're, but they're recording how people respond, and the person is sitting next to the little girl on the bench, and they kind of overhear what's going on, this conversation, and as soon as they uh, are, start to dial in on this, and they realize that this little girl does not know this man, everyone intervenes. They, they, they speak up, they ask the person to leave, they stand up, they get between the girl and the, and the man, they threatened to call the police. Every one of them intervened. Now, I, I was watching this and I found myself asking the question, what would I do in that situation? I think that's sort of the point. Would I act? The girl was an amazing, the little girl was an amazing actor. Everyone was convinced that this was real. Here's my question. Did they do the right thing? Did they do the right thing? Yes, for sure, I heard Mark say. I agree, 100%, they did the right thing. Now let's consider this for a moment. This implies that there is a standard of right and wrong. That kidnapping is wrong. And that defending this little girl is right. This also implies that we have a moral obligation to help others, to stand against evil. And then that makes me want to ask another question. Does it apply on a societal level? Say, for example, we scale this up to the subject of human trafficking. Does the obligation change? Let me suggest that we are called to strive against evil in every sphere of life, in ourselves, in our families, in the church, and in the nation, in the world. As we begin today, 
I want to look at Proverbs 28, 4 and 5. It's a little bit weird. We're continuing our series in Deuteronomy. It's weird to go to a verse in Proverbs, but I think this will help us to set up this sermon for today. It says this, those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. So to forsake the law of God is to praise the wicked, to promote wickedness. Wickedness spreads like weeds in a garden, and it must be uprooted. Those who keep the law of God, this says, strive against the wicked, those who do evil. This means that we also strive and seek to establish righteousness. This is two sides of the same coin. In striving against wickedness, we're also striving to establish righteousness. This is good. This is right. And this proverb is not difficult to understand. Now, there's a lot of proverbs in the book of Proverbs where you read them and you're like, I don't know if I know what this means. It's hard to understand. This one, not so much. This is straightforward. We know what this means. The wisdom piece comes in the application. When and where and how do we do this? Now, this proverb has countless applications. We might not all strive against wickedness in exactly the same areas, but there is no question that God's people are all called to strive against the wicked. Now, I say this because many Christians disagree. They don't see the need or the good of Christians getting involved in striving against the wicked in, say, politics or the culture wars, as they're called. Now, in another video that I watched, there were many people who watched a a man steal a a, a baby car carrier, you know, like you, you put the baby and you can lug it around. While this woman was distracted, the mom was distracted, this man comes out of the blue, and he picks it up, and he, and he starts running away. And I watched in this video as whole groups of people saw this happen and did nothing. And as I watched it happen, I couldn't help it. Inside, I was like, do something, even though I knew it was fake. <laughs> like, I know this isn't real, and still there is this sense of obligation, of moral obligation to get engaged and to do something. I share this because I think we see the real evil that is taking place in our culture, in our nation today, and how many of us are like those people. We do nothing. We just go about our lives. See, Christians should strive against wickedness in society, in the church, in your family, and in your own life, in every sphere or jurisdiction. That's what we're going to see in our text today. So turn in your Bibles to to Deuteronomy chapter 25. We're going to be covering an entire chapter today. We're going to be moving pretty quickly through this text, and we're unpacking another box of miscellaneous laws today as we wind down the law portion of this book, I guess as we go through the book of Deuteronomy, I should mention that we're going to cover all of it. (laughs) And this passage, this chapter has a lot of difficult parts to it, but we're going to look at all of them today. We're going to see God's people are called to stand for justice in all these different areas, in, in 
business and family and in society and all these different places in every sphere. So the message for us this morning is this, strive against evil and uphold justice. And we'll see this in the six laws of this chapter. First, punish the guilty in proportion to their crime, uphold due process. We see this in verses one through three. There's a process to convict and punish a criminal. Look at the text with me. If there's a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, and then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given to him, but not more. Lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. I want you to notice several principles here. There must be a proper trial. Verse 1, guilt has to be proven based on the evidence. They're, they're innocent until proven guilty. So just like we saw in chapter 19, when witnesses are, are called, that are called against the person, they're attempting to prove guilt not prove innocence. So innocent until proven guilty. And then a judgment is given and the person is declared guilty of wrong. This means, again, that justice in court requires a standard of what right and wrong is. Justice acquits the innocent and condemns the guilty, seeing that the guilty are properly punished. It does not punish the innocent. So any legal process that lets the guilty go free or punishes the innocent is a miscarriage of justice. Proverbs 17.5 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We also see that the punishment must fit the crime. Verse 2, a, a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. More serious crime deserves more severe punishment. And if the crime deserves a beating, there are some rules to follow here, showing that even the criminal had certain rights under God's law. It mustn't be excessive. 40 stripes was the max. The judge must supervise, making sure that the proper number was given. No more, no less. This shows us here that this punishment is given in a controlled fashion, not in a rage. The reason for the limit here is so that your brother might not be degraded. This is still an image bearer of God, still a brother in the Lord. But I want you to notice here that giving a person a proper punishment for their crime isn't degrading. Only when you go beyond that, when it becomes excessive. This is not a call to be soft on crime, but to be proportioned. So we need to strive to uphold these principles of due process. The state should not condemn the innocent or acquit the guilty. And as our nation has turned away from God and the standard of right and wrong has been lost or perverted, the more unjust we become. But these principles of due process have a wider application, right? We could apply them in other spheres. So let's take our homes, for example. There must be evidence of guilt before we punish our children. We not, must not punish the innocent. The punishment should fit the crime. We don't give a level eight punishment for a level two offense, so if a kid slams a door, you might make them go back and close it 10 times softly. Or if they use a potty word, you might make them go clean the bathroom. And of course, we know that more serious offenses deserve more severe punishments. Yet even so, it should never be excessive. As we see in our text, 
we don't punish in anger, but in a controlled fashion. And as here, the Bible calls us to disciple our children with all dignity, 1 Timothy 3, 4. This means training them, but never shaming them when they do wrong. Yeah, we give consequences, yet without degrading them, without attacking their character. There's a big difference between saying, this action was selfish, and you are selfish. We need to be careful to avoid words that degrade and tear down. So we uphold due process in every sphere. Second, a laborer deserves his wages, uphold workers. We see this in the short little verse four. Look there with me. You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. What's going on here? Well, a greedy farmer might want to keep his animals working. He doesn't want them to stop and eat, or he might want to save the grain that they would eat for himself. God says, no, the ox deserves some compensation for his work, a share in the fruits of his labor. To deprive them would be unjust. Of course, if God demands fair treatment and care for working animals, then how much more for working humans? Paul uses this text twice in the New Testament to teach this principle that a laborer deserves his wages, especially as it's related to ministers of the gospel, such as pastors and missionaries. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7 through 9, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Then he applies it in verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reach, reap material things from you? Or again in 1 Timothy 5, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This, this law trains and develops God's people with a proper sense of justice as it relates to work and pay. It teaches us to both be just and kind to everyone who's employed for our good. Employers should promptly pay their employees a just wage. So uphold due process, uphold workers. Third, take care of your family, uphold family. We see this in verses 5 through 10 in this law about leveret marriage that has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. The word brother-in-law in Latin is levir. This is where we get the term leveret marriage. So here's the situation. If brothers are dwelling together, not necessarily in the same house, but in the same uh, area, the same land, presumably the, uh, sharing the land of their father, and if one of them dies without a son then the wife is not to marry outside the family to a stranger, verse 5. Instead, her brother-in-law shall take her as his wife, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. This would provide for the widow, but the primary purpose here is so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel, verse 6. Their inheritance in the land was linked to their tribe, their clan, their family, so it was the duty of a brother to marry the widow to produce a son who would inherit the deceased brother's name and property so that the inheritance would stay in the family and his name would be carried on. Now, if he didn't want to marry his brother's wife, he didn't have to, but that would lead to his shaming, verses 7 through 10. She'd go to the elders in the gate and say, my brother's 
My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me, verse 7. And then the elders will speak to him, verse 8, presumably trying to convince him to do his duty, to change his mind. But if he persists in refusing, then the wife shall pull off his sandal and spit in his face in front of everybody, verse 9. I know it's a great offense in our day to have your sandal pulled off, isn't it? (laughs) And he'll be called the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Burn. What a burn. The point is, is that those who refuse to build up their brother's name will have their own name tarnished, verse 10. The whole ritual here is showing maximum disapproval for his actions. Why would he refuse? Possibly for financial reasons, for financial gain. When the widow died, then the brother's share of the inheritance would be distributed to him or to any other brothers that are around. Now, the way in which we care for for childless widows and support families for their present and future good, that might be different, but the principle remains. We have a responsibility as believers to take care of our family. The strong shame that comes from neglecting to do this shows how serious this responsibility should be taken. And the New Testament shares the same strong emphasis on the Christian duty for taking care of your family, saying, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, 1 Timothy 5, 3-8. Now, as a church... God's people are to honor and support those who are true widows, those who don't, they're alone, they don't have anyone, but those who have children or grandchildren, uh, those children and grandchildren should care for them, making some return to their parents, 1 Timothy 5, 4. So caring for your family, your siblings, your parents, your spouse, that's a Christian duty. What it looks like might vary, nevertheless, it's our responsibility Justice demands that you take care of your family. Fourth, protect purity and progeny. We see this in verses 11 through 12. Uphold a biblical sexual ethic. If two men are fighting and the wife of one comes to rescue her husband from the guy who's beating him up and she seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. Now there are two issues here that are going on. The first is purity. This was a shameless and immodest action. Second, and the more likely reason for this law, is concern about damaging the man's ability to produce children, connecting this law with the previous one where the man has no heir. This action carried a severe punishment. So what do we learn from this? It teaches us the value and the importance of both purity and producing children. And the punishment may seem harsh, but God deems it just. And this is a reminder for us to be careful about putting ourselves in the place of judging God's word and making what we think to be the standard of morality and justice. Grabbing him was a crime, even though she did it to defend her husband. Catch that. How much worse then to do so out of lust or sexual immorality? This would include any kind of sexual abuse. 
We have an obligation to protect a person's purity and their right to privacy, to protect people from predators, especially children. That includes in bathrooms and locker rooms. We also see the ability to reproduce is precious and it should be protected. It was a crime to even potentially ruin the man's ability to produce children. How much worse then when we do it on purpose? Think of the irreversible damage being done to our children by the demonic trans movement. We're sterilizing young people. We're destroying their ability to reproduce. This is a great moral evil. We have an obligation to protect future generations. And that includes the obligation to protect children from the perversions of the LGBTQ plus and from this evil, truly evil trans movement, this trans cult. Now, on the positive side of this, if you look at these last two laws about having an heir to pass on a name and inheritance to, and this one here about protecting a man's ability to have children, these two laws encourage us to see the great blessing of having children. And if passing on an earthly inheritance is so important, then how much more passing on a spiritual inheritance to our children? In the ultimate promised land, which is heaven, establishing a spiritual legacy, passing on your faith so that your kids have a share in the kingdom of God. The greatest inheritance, the greatest legacy that you can give your children is that of faith in Jesus Christ and a place in heaven. Fifth, use one righteous standard. Uphold fairness and honesty. We see this in verses 13 through 16. So the law forbids the use of two different weights or measures. Look at the text with me. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. So what's going on here? A dishonest businessman, uh, he could use large weights when buying things so that he could obtain more, and he could use a small weight when he was selling things so that he could give the customer less. In other words, it's a way of cheating in business. Instead of that, Verse 15, verse 15 says, they should have one full and fair that is perfectly just or righteous weight and measure for business. They should have only one set for buying and selling. They should meet the universal standard. Why? Well, this allowed the marketplace to operate with integrity. People could trust that what they were buying and selling was the right amount. There was no cheating. There's no double standards. Double standards are evil. How do we know they're evil? Because look at verse 16. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly are an abomination to the Lord your God. This was dishonest and this was theft. This is stealing. God wants complete honesty and fairness in business. And there's two motivations given here. The first is the promise of covenant blessing, that your days may be long in the land, verse 15. The second is a warning of judgment. Understand this. Unequal weights and measures are being put on par with things like idolatry, child sacrifice, and sexual perversion, immorality, as an abomination to God. It it brings his judgment. That shows us how much God cares about exploiting people and ethical business practices. 
A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Proverbs 11.1. 1. This also reminds us that God weighs the heart. And what he wants from his people is righteousness and justice. Proverbs 21, 2, and 3. This means Christians should be marked by hard work and fair treatment and honesty in all of their business practices. No false advertising, no cutting corners, no cheating people. And being honest in business goes both directions. It's for both the buyer and the seller. Not taking more from change from a cashier than we're owed. Not being dishonest in filing our taxes. I was buying milk the other day at the grocery store because it was on sale and you had to buy two gallons to get the milk, but they only had one gallon left. So I talked to the guy and he's like, here, I'll substitute this other gallon for you. Just tell the cashier at the front what's going on. So she makes sure to give you the sale price. Okay, no problem. Go talk to the lady and she doesn't understand what it is. So instead of me Instead of me getting the sale price for each gallon, it was supposed to be like so much a gallon, right? Instead, she rings it up as like one gallon, and then she's going to give me the other one for free. I was tempted to be like, oh, this is really expensive. Maybe I'll just take... No, I corrected her. I was like, I can't do that. If I let that slide, if I let that slide, that's dishonesty in business, and it's an abomination to God. Do you see? So this principle of no double standards, it has a broad application. It applies in politics, media, family. So, for example, the proposal by the Biden administration to charge those with good credit a higher interest rate on a home mortgage and then use that money to subsidize those with bad credit is an example of unequal weights and measures. That's a double standard. The same standard is not being applied equally. That's unjust. Moreover, it also breaks the first principle because it's punishing those who do good. It's punishing those who have worked hard and saved and been responsible. It's promoting irresponsibility and bad behavior. This too is unjust. Now, I want to just step aside for a moment and talk about this. Twice now in our text, we've seen the need for a just standard. We've seen the need for a standard of right and wrong and a standard of weights and measures. But I want you to notice here that the standard itself must be right. It must be full and fair, perfectly just. Otherwise, it's going to be constantly wrong. A a false standard always yields false results. So let me me have a volunteer for a minute. Is there anyone who will come up here? It's nothing major. Okay, come on up. Come on up. Yeah, give him a hand. All right, Thomas, here's what I want. I've got a little ruler here, six inches long. All I want you to do is draw a line on this piece of paper that's four inches long. You can use my pen. You can use that little table right there if you need to. He's very meticulous. Done? All right, hold it up. All right, how long is that line, Thomas? Thomas? (laughs) four inches wrong use this one and tell me how long that that line is see every one of those marks on the ruler that i gave him was just slightly longer than one inch so how the line he drew first was actually four and a half inches long 
See, the thing is, is that a false standard always yields false results. Thanks. You can go sit down. If you use the wrong standard, you're always going to get a false result. It doesn't matter how meticulous you are in observing it. It doesn't matter how careful he is in drawing that line. It's going to be wrong because his standard is wrong. Now, that's not that big of a deal when we're drawing lines on paper. But what if we're drawing moral lines? As a nation, in many places, we've denied God's standard of right and wrong. But that doesn't mean that we have no standard. We've simply replaced God's standard for our own, for a false one. In so many cases, those who do wrong believe that they're doing good. And those who do good are seen as doing wrong. When you don't have God's standard anymore, what are you left with? You're left with this. What would Beyonce do? If you don't, if you don't have God's word, where are you going to look for your standard? Do you know where this is from? The auditorium in this school. This middle school. When you don't have God's word, what ends up happening is you get a false standard and what's good is actually called evil and what's evil is actually called good. I want you to think about the law that was just passed in Minnesota that threatens to take kids away from their parents if they're not gender affirming. I have no doubt that those who pass this law see it as a great good. You can tell by how happy they are, smiles on their faces when they talk about it. They see it as a great good because they have a false standard. In reality, it is a great evil. Both because so-called gender care does not help. It hurts children. And because this law usurps parental rights, it tramples their jurisdiction. It's an example of tyranny. It's unjust in both ways. All because of a false standard. A false standard always gives you false results. The only perfectly just and righteous standard of morality is the Bible. And when that's rejected, we call evil good and good evil. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Isaiah 59, 14 and 15. Living righteously according to God's word makes you a prey. In this case, the state threatens to take away your children. The standard has to be right because a false standard always gives false results. We're called to strive against evil and uphold justice, righteousness. But in order to strive against evil, you've got to know what evil is. Now, before we leave this point, let me bring this just a bit closer to home. Remember, God detests dishonesty and a double standard. 
This means that the standard that you hold other people to is the standard that you need to keep for yourself. That has implications for parenting. We can't say to our children, do as I say and not as I do. No double standards. We must uphold one righteous standard. Lastly, finally, defend the weak and the needy. Uphold the weak. We see this in verses 17 through 18. Strictly speaking, this last uh, portion is not law, but actually instruction on carrying out God's judgment, God's justice on the Amalekites once they're settled in the promised land. They were to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget, verse 19. Don't forget to do this. Why? Because Amalek attacked them when they came out of Egypt, verse 17, when they were weary and they cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind, verse 18. In other words, they attacked the stragglers, the weakest among them. That would be the elderly, the sick, the pregnant women, the children, those who would be moving slower and who would make easy targets. This is inhumane and it's barbaric. It's a total lack of compassion. This action showed that they had no fear of God, verse 18. Matthew Henry says this, the greatest cowards are often the most cruel, while those that have the courage of a man will have the compassion of a man. Their lack of mercy for the weak deserved God's wrath. This isn't about them attacking Israel. This is about them attacking the weak and the vulnerable. God's going to call them to account for this great injustice. This is what makes abortion and child trafficking and the transing of our children and any effort at euthanasia for elderly such absolute abominations. They're all crimes that exploit the weakest and the most vulnerable, the people who are deserving of our greatest care and protection. The abortionists, the traffickers, the trans promoters, they all have this in common. Like the Amalekites, they prey on the weakest. I've often wondered if abortion doctors would continue if babies could fight back. What if babies were armed? What if they had the strength to fight back? How many abortionists would continue to do abortions? They're the most cowardly and the most cruel. Oh, it's a great ungodliness. And though we don't fight them physically, we should fight to eliminate these evil practices. To blot out the memory of these practices. Blot them out from under heaven. We should stand for justice and strive against evil. Who are the weak, the needy, and the defenseless in our day? They deserve our protection. We should also trust God's justice. God is sovereign. He reigns over all history. And judgment will fall on those who persist in their sin with no fear of God. It wasn't for another roughly 400 years until God tells King Saul to go carry out his judgment on the Amalekites. And he failed. It wasn't until the days of Hezekiah that it was finished by the Simeonites. They defeated the remnant of the Amalekites who had escaped, 1 Chronicles 4.43. 
This is evidence of the mercy and patience of God in delaying his judgment for so long, giving them time to repent and to turn to him. It's also a reminder that God never fails to keep his word and uphold his standard of righteousness. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice because they don't use God's perfect standard. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Proverbs 28, 4 and 5. We are called to strive against evil and uphold justice in every sphere of life. In the courts, in the workplace, in the marketplace, in our family, in society, in business, in the nation, in the church, in the family, in ourselves. As we close... Let's consider this for just a moment. We all stand justly accused before God. We are all guilty. We've all been convicted. We've all been caught on camera, on tape. There's no way of weaseling out of this one. And we deserve far more than 40 stripes. We deserve death and separation from God in hell forever for our sins. Thank God that Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve so that there is no condemnation for us. Thank God that he sent Jesus Christ who suffered and died in our place for our sins so that we could be forgiven for our sins. That he rose from the dead showing that he conquered sin and death so that anyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in him will be pardoned, will be acquitted. Praise God that we are declared righteous in Christ and acquitted. Praise God that Jesus' work on the cross is justly compensated, as is our labor in the Lord. Jesus is going to have the fruits of his work on the cross. And we will have the reward for our labor in his name. Praise God that our inheritance can never be lost, that it's kept in heaven for us, that it's imperishable and undefiled, Praise God that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Praise God that his justice will be done and it will be full and fair. No enemies of God will escape judgment. All will be set right. In the meantime, let's live righteously. Let's strive against evil and uphold what is good. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. We thank you for your word, the Bible, which is the standard of absolute moral truth. We thank you, God, that you have rescued us from our own sin, that you have made a way through Jesus Christ to be forgiven so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we ask and pray for the grace and strength and wisdom to be faithful to your word, to live righteously, and to stand for justice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.